let's go back to 2 Timothy 4. We'll take a second and final week for those of you who are our guests. We have been studying the book of John before the holiday season. As we commence the celebration of our 75th year, I thought I'd take just the first two weeks of the new year to, to focus on a text that gives us um, some reminders by way of command of how to nurture that which has been established here in Christ over the years, how to nurture it, to maintain it for the next 75 years. We discussed last week that in this text there's commands throughout the pastoral epistles that seek to establish the church in truth. And then there are certain verbs that seek to nurture that which has been established. We underlined these verbs last week. We'll remind you very quickly that the first one is in verse 2 of chapter 4. Preach the word. Preach the word. Through the preaching of the word, that which has been established for the gospel is nurtured and cared for and maintained. Paul says in verse 9, make every effort to come to me soon. And Later on in the text, he says, I'd like you to do that before winter. We talked last week and preached last week about the necessity of caring for each other and, uh, and making sure that that which has been established is nurtured through the interdependent mutual care of the flock for its shepherds and then among the sheep. We looked at Galatians chapter 6 and we very clearly saw in that text, that famous text that we're all aware of, that we need to sow exceedingly in the caring of one another so that we can reap that which is eternal in benefit. If you sow sparingly, you'll reap sparingly. And this is in relationship to how we care for one another. We'll pick up where we left off last week and in verse 11 Paul says, only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful for me in service. Useful for me in service. So we have the command to nurture through proclaiming or through proclamation. We have the command to nurture through caring. And now we have the command to nurture through maintaining Proclaiming, caring, and now maintaining. Maintaining what? Well, relationships. Relationship here. Pick up Mark, Paul tells Timothy. And let's be reunited together for, for the gospel's sake. It's like Paul is saying, nurture your pastors, they'll nurture you, but don't forget to nurture each other by ensuring the maintenance of your relationships. And he's going to model this by his own heart's desire for Timothy and then ultimately for the group of people he pastors in, in Ephesus. I would just like to encourage you to continue as we minister together the gospel, as you walk with each other and among this body, that you discipline yourselves to do what Paul has done here with John Mark. Now, he had been separated from John Mark over uh, 
what I would call a tertiary third-level ministry disagreement. Um, after having been separated from him in ministry, uh, now he's aware that it was an providentially necessary, but, a, but humanly speaking, an unnecessary separation. That it would be good for John Mark to be reunited. This is the cousin of Barnabas and with Paul in ministry, especially in Paul's latter days as he's, as he's nearing the day of his martyrdom under the, at the hand of Nero. But Paul here has done something that models for Timothy and then the people of Ephesus that we need to do here, and we talk about it often here. He's assuming that John Mark is born again. He's assuming during this separation that John Mark has been growing in Christ-likeness. And now he's determined to continue to build that relationship with John Mark for the gospel's sake. And we talk about that a lot, so much here that I fear that it might become a bit cliche if we're not careful. When we look into the eyes of any believer here, we ought to assume they're born again. We ought to assume that they're growing in Christ-likeness. And we ought to build a relationship with them towards that goal. If they're not born again, folks, that will demonstrate itself in time as we seek to build those relationships. But we ought to treat one another the way New Testament writers write the church. They write assuming that born again people are hearing the truth. They write assuming, whether that's a praise or an admonition, correction or rebuke that they're going to learn from that and that they're going to pick up and grow again and in so doing relationships are maintained why for gospel growth of course genuine christians in local churches that seek to nurture that church and as they seek to remain spirit filled never cancel each other out of their lives it's equally impossible to nurture forgiveness and relationships when professing believers are not spirit-filled. I understand that. Sometimes people do things and they remain out of fellowship with the Lord and even some pastors at times. But the reality remains, spirit-filled people long to maintain relationships, even if that includes the restoration of those relationships. Why? Because there's something greater at stake here, and it's not us. It's not merely our relationships. It's the progress of the gospel. There's been plenty of evangelical leaders in the past five years or so that have publicly left Christianity. You may know who they are. An author that I appreciate said this in relationship to a number of these evangelical public figures, figures that abandoned the faith. He said, when people leave Christianity because the church won't affirm or celebrate their lifestyle choices, people aren't leaving religion. They're just joining a new one where the object of worship is self. But this wasn't the case with John Mark, who's the cousin of Barnabas. He had separated from Paul for a time, and it's time now to have that relationship restored and maintained for the gospel's sake. Temporary separation was necessary, but final reconciliation was even more necessary. 
The nature of this command from Paul has at its very core the nurturing of the pastoral heart. You see, I believe the very nature of the pastor-teacher gift lends itself to a more guttural hurt when God's people separate and refuse to get along. Nothing tears a pastor's heart, the Lord's heart even more, literally in two and cast them into deep depression than seeing the flock unnecessarily divide. There's never anything that's easy come, easy go when it comes to the pastor losing a sheep. If it's ever easy for a pastor, then he's either not spirit-filled or doesn't have the pastor-teacher gift. Paul's teaching through this command that if we want to nurture that which has been established, that we pray and we seek to maintain or in some cases restore our personal relationships among us. And in so doing, you nurture the heart of the pastors who nurture you and the content and the progress of the gospel is protected. Weeks ago, in prayer meeting, uh, someone asked me a question I've never been asked before. They said, Pastor, what's the number one grief in 30 years of ministry that your heart has endured? And it didn't take long to have that answer. <laughs> and it's when Christians fail to maintain their relationships and biblical communication. And then they separate from one another. 99.9% of the time on third level tertiary issues that aren't even looked at in scripture. And then they don't seek to restore those relationships. It's been the hardest thing. It's been the hardest thing. Not only are you hurt because the relationships are separated, but every time Satan is successful in separating a Christian relationship, he knows he's caused, he's caused gospel progress to limp instead of walk and run. It's amazing to me that even pastors that disagree with one another and separate from one another do so over often third-level issues Gospel-preaching pastors, Bible-believing pastors. And they never seek to work together. They never seek to restore those relationships together. And yet they preach to their people, be unified. <laughs> Where they themselves aren't even practicing in their own pastoral relationships that which they're preaching to their people to maintain. So even the most mature, those who are most familiar with the whole of Scripture struggle at this particular command. Who do you need to bring back into your realm? Maybe it's within this church. Maybe it's without. But it needs to be done for the sake of gospel progress. Verse 13, the next command that will nurture the church and that which has been established for the next 75 years. Bring with you, Timothy, three things. 
cloak, the books, and the parchments. Cloak, the books, and the parchments. I would like to establish this morning that there are some reasonable expectations that we all can have for one another. The passion to fulfill unrealistic expectations can ruin any church and any relationship within the church. I understand that. But Paul here asks for three simple things, and we find out that each are essential to the nurturing of the person in the church and then the body of the church. He's modeling through these three simple, to ask for these three simple things, something that will nurture you and nurture us for the long haul, to maintenance that which has been established. He's left as we read last week, a fellow named Carpus, some 600 miles away in Troas, little town by the water, shipping port town and essential at that time, and Paul's 600 miles away in a Roman prison. We're only left to suspect that Paul left these three things with Carpus because he assumed that when he went to Rome, he would be arrested. When you're arrested in Rome, you're stripped of everything on your person, and it's burned. So Paul wisely leaves these three things that are very important to him with Carpus for his care, and he's asking Timothy now, to bring him and these things with him. Why a cloak? Why a cloak? Now, I don't have the sanctified imagination of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. I don't know if you've ever read his sermons or make a habit of doing so. I would encourage you to, but that's one sanctified imagination. Spurgeon lays out six different reasons why Paul's cloak is mentioned here. He has a whole sermon on why bring the cloak. And it's profound. It's really good. I don't have time to give you a whole sermon on the cloak. But we can say that Paul is in a cold, dark prison. It's a mamertine prison. Some of you in your Sunday school class, I believe in the Life in the Middle, recently had pictures and a very very good optical and audible description given to you of what these Mamertine prisons are or were. They exist on two, at the most, three levels. Back when they were originally built, it's like you would have been lowered through a, um, well, I guess if you're on any city street, right, and you're in the middle of the street, you would have a circular steel plate over a hole. Right? And if you remove that steel plate and you descend down into that hole, there's lots of things down there. It could be uh, water pipes, it could be fiber optic lines, it could be electrical lines, um, uh, or it could just be a sewer. Right? Well, that's what was, these prisons were like. You were, you were arrested and you were lowered down into a concrete you know, four-walled cell with no light. In some of these prisons, often they would flood. 
And when you were in those prisons and it was cold outside, you would sit for, for days in, in water, cold water. And it was beyond a miserable situation here that Paul writes from in Rome when he writes to Timothy and says, bring my cloak. Well, obviously he needed it for warmth. He needed it to survive, to be able to continue to write and, and minister to those that would listen. The gospel of Jesus Christ. I would just like to leave you three simple things in relationship to this cloak that I think would be good for all of us to remember about Paul personally when he asks for this garment. First of all, I would like to emphasize, be thankful for, and promote to all of us Paul's willingness to persevere in sacrifice. In sacrifice. None of us in this room are even close to being in his circumstance. Would you agree? When we say that we've lost everything in our culture, that usually means that we've lost maybe our bank accounts, our, our investments, we've lost our home, we've lost our car, we've lost our lifestyle to be sure. I've lost everything. And yet we still have clothes on our back. We probably have a meal brought to us by at least one friend. And we're probably going to be offered some shelter over our heads that night. What we're offered in those three things is even more than Paul had. If we lost everything, I wonder for myself, how would I persevere? Right? We went through that with Job a little bit last year, didn't we? How would I persevere? I just want to encourage you that this is superlative sacrifice that Paul is modeling here when he just simply asks for a cloak. And he's persevering well in the greatest sacrifice. And you know what? If God providentially brings us to that point, we will too. We will too. I can remember, you know, my, my kids are, some of them are home for Christmas and, and, and we're, we're talking about all the ways the Lord's blessed us and so forth. And, and uh, thankfully, I, all, all my kids are just really passionate about, you know, having some money in their savings accounts. I was, you know, thank God. I'm glad you guys can do that. I was just like, I, could, I didn't have a savings account as a teenager. I didn't have a savings account as a college kid. Uh, Mom and I were married for 14 years before we even had a savings account. You say, you were just bad stewards of your money. Well, whatever you want to say, I don't really care. The bottom line is, we didn't even have money to put in there, right? We were, we were whatever we had, had to be spent on needs, right? So my kids started to chuckle me. No, there's just this no way. I was like, dudes, I'm telling you. We didn't have a savings account, and God still took care of us. But even though we didn't have a savings account, and I'm not whining over that. I never did whine about that. I really don't care. You just live and get up and learn to serve the Lord. We still had so much more than Paul had here. God always provided. And I think the point is this. Persevere in sacrifice. And number two, 
be willing to persevere in simplicity. The progress of the gospel is not dependent on how much stuff that we have. Jesus builds his church. He does it through you. Oftentimes, gospel progress has reached its peak during the times of Christians' greatest simplicity. So sacrifice, simplicity, and sanctification, number three. Paul grew in his relationship with his Savior during this time. He became more Christ-like. Now, the text says that during this time he had, he had reached the, the, the primary prayer goal of his life. He actually had the opportunity to stand before Nero himself and give the gospel. The text that we read last week said he stood before the whole of the Roman guard there to protect Nero and his cabinet. And he proclaims the gospel to Nero himself. And the text says, when I did that, there was no one in the Roman church that came and stood with me. But he said what in the text? Look with me. At my first defense, this is a defense that would have been before Nero and before the Roman authorities at the highest level. At my first defense, no one in the Roman church stood with me. We can't say that no one stood with him because the text says Luke was with him in Rome. Dr. Luke. But no one in the Roman church, you see, if you went before Nero and stood with Paul to give a defense of the gospel you probably would be facing at minimal what Paul was enduring, having everything taken away, putting, put in prison, so forth and so on. So, but then he says what? Don't, don't hold that to their account. I get why they're not here. They're, they're, they're not strong as I am to be here. I love that compassion that Paul has for the Roman Christians. They're not strong enough to be here yet. Lord, don't hold that to their account. But I'm here, and I'm here alone. So he says, while no one, everyone deserted me, may it not be counted against me. Well, look at verse 17. He says, but the Lord, what? The Lord stood with me. Cross-reference in the margin of your Bible, the book of Acts chapter 7. I'm not going to have you go there. I'm going to turn there very, very quickly. And you remember when Stephen's martyred. Remember that text? He's preached this wonderful sermon about God's faithfulness to the Jewish community in the Old Testament. And he preaches the gospel, and the more he preaches, the more the blood boils of the religious onlookers to the point where in Acts chapter 7 and verse 54 through verse 60, you can read the story. He says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him, and but being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of the Lord and Jesus, what? Standing. Standing at the right hand of God. And he says the same thing a little bit later. At Stephen's last hour of his life and as Paul nears the last hour of his, alone and facing death, Jesus up for them. Now, 
When you look at the, Old Te- the New Testament scriptures, we're used to seeing Christ where? Seated at the right hand of God. And that language kind of establishes who he is and his authority over all things. But when Jesus stands, this is the posture. This is an Old Testament Jewish posture of prayer. Jesus is interceding. He's standing as the divine advocate before the Father, pleading the case of Stephen and of Paul before Nero. Jesus stood up off his throne and and prays to the Father for their care and for their protection and for their transition to their heavenly home. Paul, though he was alone, was still pursuing his understanding of who Christ was and Christ's ministry to him in a very, very practical way. A lot of other things about this cloak, again, reference Spurgeon, not me. But bring the cloak, bring the books, he says. Bring the books. These books would have been a variety of genres of literature, actually. Paul's mind was sharp, and he wanted to keep it as sharp in his last days. Of all the folks that it could have felt like he'd learned all that he could learn in a lifetime, I suppose that person would have been Paul, right? His education had been at the highest terminal level in the Jewish community. He sat at the feet of Gamaliel. He'd been inspired to write two-thirds of the New Testament. In Acts chapter 9, he had a face-to-face meeting with Jesus at his conversion. 2 Corinthians tells us he'd seen things in heaven that were too wonderful to explain to mere men. We could go on and on. But it's established here that Paul was a learned man and he still wanted to learn more. A friend of mine has a men's ministry in his church and they call it the fat men's ministry. These are not men that are calorically challenged. Right? This is the meaning of the acrostic. Faithful, active, and teachable. Let's be fat men together. This was Paul. Stay learning, stay teachable. This is a realistic expectation. Think of who he is. And think of the Christ example he's following. With the Lord Jesus all the way until he breathed his last with no one to stand with him. But he still learned from his father. Bring the books. Bring the books. Stay teachable. Keep your minds active. This is remember, this is about nurturing and maintaining that which has been established in the church. Keep reading. I was taught in seminary that readers are leaders. And I can't read fast enough. It's like I can't keep up with all that needs to be read. You know, but you do your best and Thankful now we've got ebooks, right? Right? So I'm on a nine hour journey on Thursday to North Carolina and you flip on an ebook, right? I'm on a nine hour journey back from North Carolina yesterday and you flip on more books and you listen. And if you can't have time to put your eyeballs on it, you put your ear gate to it and you just learn and, and keep learning and keep learning. And I trust you are and I trust you will but that's really what the text says 
Now he says, but bring to me especially the parchments. You see that in the text? Bring to me the parchments. John MacArthur, one of the books that I've read, uh, said this. Early in my ministry, I determined before the Lord that I would simply worry about the depth of my ministry, and I would let God take care of the breadth of it. And I appreciate that, and I think that should be a pledge of allegiance of maybe all of our hearts. Let's go deep into the word, and, and let, let's let the Lord care about the building of his church and, and the breadth of our ministry. And certainly Paul did the same. By mentioning the realistic expectation of receiving the parchments, he's telling us he values something even greater than books. Especially the parchment. The parchments. Now, it's not really specific here. I think on purpose. Parchments would have been in reference to original autographs of written inspired scripture. So Paul had written under inspiration a good portion of the New Testament by this time. And remember, he kept those scrolls with a man 600 miles away for their protection. Now think about, for those of you who are, love bibliology, right? We always say that inspiration's a miracle, but we also say that preservation's a miracle, right? Think about the wisdom God gave Paul to leave these parchments with his friend in Troas. But he says, now they can be safely brought to me, and especially the writings of Scripture. But think about this too. I was talking about this with my wife this week, about these parchments. And she said, you know, Tim, um, she has the most wonderful practical ideas sometimes about a text. She goes, think about it. If he's under inspiration, I know it's working in confluence with the Spirit of God to write the Scriptures. I, I get that. But think about all Paul had to still learn from that which he wrote under inspiration. Now think about that when you sit down and read a familiar text. How many times can you read a familiar text and still get blessed by it or get more truth out of it? And here's the author of these parchments and he says, bring them to me. I cannot live by the mere prison bread alone. I've got to live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. This is, the, this is the nurturing of that which has been established in the church for the next 75 years. We've got to be word-saturated individuals. We've got to be a word-saturated body. The greatest discipline we must have in our daily lives is the reading and understanding and the living of the word of God. We do that personally. We do that collectively in discipleship. We do that in teaching. We do that in preaching. But I'm telling you, especially the parchments. Isn't it true for all of us that the most essential things sometimes become the greatest things that we have to maintain in our lives, the greatest hardships we face in maintaining in our lives? The harder it is to maintain a discipline in the reading of the scriptures, you know that that's the greatest thing we need to do. Amen. Okay? Be familiar with the scriptures. We close this morning by looking at this next command. He, he simply says here, and you'll go to verse number 19. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. What a great what a great listing of names here among others in the text. 
Greet Prisca. Now, some of you know this woman from the book of Acts and other parts of the New Testament as being Priscilla. That was actually the informal name. Right? Uh, some of you, if you're named maybe uh, Catherine, you're, you're going to be called maybe K or special K by your dad or sweet K or, or you're going to be called Katie or Kate or well Priscilla was was the informal name of Prisca Prisca was formal in, in this day and I think there's a reason why Paul mentions her name first and, and formally and I think it's, it's to remind us of this the essential nature and purpose and need for women in the local church. The church needs spiritually mothered. Any church that devalues the role of women within her is a church that's not nurturing its future and its gospel progress. So greet these special people. We know that Prisca and Aquila were so essential to Paul. They were, they were patrons of Paul's ministry. They took their, their, their business. There's a great book out there I'm reading through right now called Gospel Patrons. And it goes clear back to ladies that underpin Christ's ministry with his disciples financially. And it goes on into the New Testament with, with Aquila and Priscilla and Paul. And, and uh, it goes on into some European and then early American uh, gospel patrons that supported men who had ministry dreams. It's a phenomenal book. I'd encourage you to read it. But certainly that they helped Paul in, in that regard. They certainly were teachers of the word of God. But he says, greet them. Support godly womanhood in the church and then uh, take these couples that are gifted with teaching, these individuals that are gifted with teaching and train them and, and make sure they have a place in the church and, and continue to nurture that which has been established by doing that. And then he mentions here Onesiphorus. Now this was a man that Paul had led to Christ, right? While in prison in Rome and apparently this this man's whole home has been saved because it says and his household oh, I don't mind personally acquainting this person with the same person that robbed Philemon blind do you remember that story there's a tremendous truth here in relationship to why Onesiphorus is mentioned here while women should be established in their proper place in the local church according to scripture and that's essential to nurturing the church and its gospel progress people that have absolutely blown up your lives in the past but have been born again discipled and nurtured in Christ's likeness have an equal place in the church that you do because our identity is not in our failures of our past no matter how hard we've been hurt how bad we've been hurt, but our identity is exclusively in Jesus Christ. Amen. Paul names in his writings with great intentionality these folks, among others in the text. 
There are things that our Lord put in creation that we just often take for granted. The hue of the sky, the faint pastel colors of spring flowers, the wind gently listing through the leaves of trees, maybe the wonder of how a bird flies or even a fish breathes. Our lives are often too busy to pay attention to these things, but when we do carve out time to wonder at them and about them, we're refreshed and encouraged, aren't we? I think, I think the listing of these things at the end of this chapter, and those, particularly the listing of these names, are often in the busyness of our Bible study and the busyness of our ministry lives and work lives and family lives, we gloss over the essential listing of these people. And we park now here to make sure we learn the why as to each command and each person being mentioned here. Paul continues to teach the necessity of nurturing, nurturing the church by actively noting, appreciating, and continually relating for gospel purposes, even with like-minded saints who are able and willing to do gospel ministry with us. A lot of more layers to the listing of these names. We'll close this morning. But there's one verb that's not a nurturing verb that's in this text. It's a verb of establishment. And I'll just note it here, and we'll pray. Paul says here in 2 Timothy chapter 4 to guard something, to be on guard, verse 15. It's a present active imperative. Be on guard against him yourself, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. There's two men in chapter 1 by Jealous and Hermogenes in chapter 1 and verse 15 that are mentioned. Demas we mentioned last week and Here's Alexander the coppersmith who's mentioned with a qualification. Beware of this dude. He's a particularly scary dude because he not only departed, he stayed and became a cancer within and he sought to undo that which had been established and done in good doctrine and gospel progress. And he says, guard yourself against this person. So, in addition to these verbs of nurturing, nurturing, let's remember this, that nurturing can be maintained as guarding is maintained. Guarding ourselves against those that are gospel enemies within. And notice the qualification here, he opposed our what? Our teaching. There's a positive and negative aspect to this, my friends, and I close with this. Guard ourselves. And we'll nurture that which has been established for the next 75 years as we guard ourselves against people who oppose our teaching by promoting noble things that aren't inscripturated. Write it down, please. Guard ourselves by opposing people who seek to Oppose our teaching by promoting noble things that aren't inscripturated. We are not here to fight for noble things that God's not asked us to fight for. We're here to preach the word and nothing but the word. That's it. 
Okay. That's the positive. You say it's not very positive. It's not pretty negative. Well, here's the negative. We're certainly going to stand opposed to people that teach against proper doctrine. Not just positively teach and promote noble things that aren't inscripturated. Walk that fine balance. And I mentioned this imperative by way of conclusion for the ultimate protection of our church. And on your own time, go back through the pastorals, particularly First and Second Timothy, and underline every time God uh, has Paul write these words to Timothy. Right? We do all these things in the presence of God. Underline those through the pastorals. In the presence of God. This is sober stuff. This is reverent material. These are essential things that we do together to guard the gospel and its progress and nurture it for the next 75 years. Okay, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we love you. We are so thankful, Lord, for the simplicity of your word. Help us, Lord, to be wise to it, wise in the understanding and the living of it. Help us to hold to it as we do caring for each other and maintaining relationships with one another. These essential nurturing commands that we've been given here in this text. We love you, Lord, and thank you for the opportunity to worship together this morning. It's been a great encouragement to all of our hearts in Christ's name. Amen.